Well, podcasters, welcome to episode 32 of our banking litigation podcast from January and February 2022. Episode 32, Kerry, it feels almost like episode 33, almost as if we've had to re-record this one. How are you? I'm very well, John. Good, and today we're joined not only by James Behind the Glass. James, recording equipment on? It's on. Thank you, James. Uh, we're joined today by Phoebe Fox, ace litigator from our banking litigation team. Hello, Phoebe. Hi, John. Long time no see. Well, spring has arrived here in London, the blossom is on the trees, and the sun's shining. So continuing with the weather theme, I'm going to kick off our podcast today with a new dawn for the Samco principle, following some big changes made by the Supreme Court last year in its uh, monumental decision in Manchester Building Society and Grant Thornton. Now, you'll remember in that case, podcasters, that the Supreme Court forecast better clarity with less chance of storms for this very tricky area of the law, So I'll take a look at the first case to consider Manchester Building Society, which is the Privy Council's decision in Charles B. Lawrence & Associates and Intercommercial Bank Limited of Trinidad and Tobago. Now, unsurprisingly, given that the Privy Council in Charles B. Lawrence was very similarly constituted to the Supreme Court in Manchester Building Society, the approach they took was remarkably similar. John, before we go into more detail, please could we have a quick reminder of the Samco principle and where the law stands following Manchester Building Society? Yes, of course, Phoebe, what a good idea. So whenever we mention Samco, this is uh, in the context of trying to determine the scope um, of a duty of care and the extent uh, of liability of professional advisors in the tort of negligence. And the big news in Manchester Building Society was that the Supreme Court did away with the traditional distinction from Samco between advice cases on the one hand and information cases on the other. Now, according to that distinction, whenever professionals give advice, they were responsible for all the foreseeable losses flowing from entering into the transaction. But um, in contrast, when they were just giving information, they were responsible only for the foreseeable consequences of the information being wrong. And this required the claimant to prove a counterfactual in bringing his case, namely that the loss would not have been suffered if the information in question had been correct. So am I right in thinking that that means that we no longer need to shoehorn a particular case into one category or another? That would be absolutely right, Phoebe. The winds of change for Samco cases. The focus is now on the purpose of the defendant's duty, judged objectively by reference to the purpose of the advice. The counterfactual test should only be regarded as a tool to cross-check the result. So anyway, getting back to the decision of the Privy Council in Charles B. Lawrence, the case concerned a claim by a bank against a valuer, where the bank sought damages in respect of a negligent valuation report for land representing the bank's security. One particular problem to highlight was that the owner of the land didn't actually have good title to it. That does not sound ideal, John. A bit like having to re-record podcasts. Yes, indeed. Yes, funny you should pick that analogy. Um, but anyway, when looking at the scope of the duty owed by the valuer, the board emphasised that it's really important to consider the purpose of the advice or the information being given, and therefore the risk being guarded against. Now, on the facts, the board found that the purpose of the report was not to advise on the title of the land, but instead to value the land on the assumption that there was good legal title. And so this meant that the valuer was off the hook for any loss attributable to a defect in title. So interestingly, the board commented that applying Samco, that's applying the counterfactual test, would have actually contradicted its findings. But it agreed that the counterfactual test was now of second order importance, 
and it's just a helpful cross-check in, in most, but obviously not all cases. This is one of the cases where it was unhelpful. The prevailing wind really is mm. blowing that weather vane in the opposite direction if we're disregarding the counterfactual test in a Samco case. Um, so do we have a blog post on this one, John? We do indeed, Kerry. You can find a link in the show notes. And as fast as lightning, we'll move on to our next topic. And I believe, Kerry, you're going to uh, talk to us about two cases involving allegations of fraudulent misrepresentation. Yes, that's right. So first up, we have Crossley and Volkswagen. And in this case, the defendants applied to strike out or summarily dismiss the claimant's fraudulent implied misrepresentation claim. The crux of the application was that the claimants could not make out one essential element of the tort, the need to prove that they were aware of the alleged representations being made. Kerry, didn't the Leeds City Council and Barclays case already go into the issue of the awareness requirement in implied misrep claims? Yes, that's right, Phoebe. Um, these two recent cases, so first Leeds and now Crossley, have shone a light on this particular building block of misrepresentation claims. And there's a bit of a clash of the fronts between Crossley and Leeds, in which the High Court has essentially reached opposite conclusions. So in Leeds, the High Court confirmed that a claimant's awareness of a representation is an essential prerequisite to a claim for misrepresentation. However, in the present case, Crossley, the claimant's pleading relied on inferences, assumptions based on the conduct of the representor and did not plead express awareness of the alleged representations made at the relevant time. But the High Court in Crossley refused to strike out the claim, finding that the awareness requirement was not necessary for the claim to have a real prospect of success at trial. This is very interesting, Kerry, because I know that a number of our clients have been following these developments closely because of the impact on the risk profile of implied misrepresentation claims against banks. Do you think there'll be much read across from Crossley for our audience? So... This is a really tricky area at the moment Mm. with two interlocutory High Court judgments seeming to conflict with one another. And one view is that there will be, in fact, limited read across from the judgment in Crossley to banking disputes. And, And this is because although the decision in Crossley suggests a less restrictive approach to that taken in Leeds, there are actually very different cases to try to compare. The court in Crossley expressly acknowledged this in particular that the implied representations alleged in Crossley were significantly more straightforward than those in Leeds. Most of the implied misrepresentation claims that we see against our clients tend to fall into this more complex category and banking cases will more naturally be aligned with the facts of Leeds anyway, which was itself a claim relating to LIBOR setting. So there are some decent arguments to say that the awareness requirement is an essential element for implied misrepresentation claims to have a real prospect of success at trial, trial in, in our sector anyway. Well, thank you, Kay. And of course, we have a blog post on this case, and there's a link in the show notes. But in case any of our podcasters would like to discuss the nuance of these cases in more detail, and there is obviously quite a lot of nuance, please do get in touch with one of us um, or your usual HSF contact. Now, Kerry, you don't get off the hook that easily. You said you had a second misrep case for us. Yes, indeed, but I'll keep this one quick. Mm-hmm. So the next case we have up is ACL Netherlands BB and Richard Lynch, otherwise known as the autonomy decision. It's not a banking dispute, but we are flagging it as the first claim to reach trial that has been brought under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act 2000, FISMA. 
So it will be of interest to any listed financial services firms or firms issuing debt securities or to those following developments in securities litigation more generally. So in a nutshell, the High Court has published a summary of its findings on liability in the long-running $5 billion civil fraud action brought by the HP Group in connection with its acquisition of the UK software company Autonomy Corporation Limited in 2012. And the outcome? The claimants have substantially succeeded in their claims against two former autonomy executives on the basis that they made dishonest statements and omissions in Autonomy's published information. The successful claims were brought under Section 90A FISMA, Common Law Misrepresentation and Deceit and the Misrepresentation Act 1967, as well as claims for breach of the defendant's management duties. So this is a significant development as the first claim brought under Section 90A FISMA to be considered at full trial. However, it's worth noting that the Section 90A FISMA claim was brought in the very different context of a post-closing M&A dispute, rather than in the more classic securities class action uh, situation brought on behalf of a large group of institutional investors. Now, Kerry, I recall reading about the intriguingly named dog-leg structure to describe the mechanism for bringing the claim in these circumstances. Can you help us with that? Uh, Yes, uh, I'll actually take a rain check on Mm. all of that in this podcast and instead refer our listeners to our Litigation Notes blog post for further detail. There's a link in the show notes. And Kerry, so far we only have a judgment, a summary of the judgment. Uh, Yeah, just a summary of the court's finding on liability. We still have the full judgment to look forward to, which may give us some helpful guidance on key elements of Section 98 FISMA. And I heard that the full judgment is around 1,500 pages. Yep, that's right. And we've read some commentary that on average a High Court judgment is about 500 uh, words a page, which would make the autonomy judgment around 750,000 words long, dwarfing War and Peace, which is a mere 587,000. Well, I promise to make any blog post coverage of the final judgment much shorter than that, John. Well, thank you very much, Kerry. Now, from War and Peace, we'll move on very swiftly to a couple of cases considering settlement issues where there's been a blizzard of recent court activity. Phoebe, what do you have for us? Well, John, today I have two different but interesting cases falling under the settlement umbrella. Wonderful. We all know how much effort goes into resolving a dispute between acrimonious parties. And so when you come across a case about litigation following a settlement agreement, it's always worth reflecting on whether any lessons can be learned. And it is with this in mind that I've selected the first case um, to look at today, which is Bank of Scotland and Hoskins. Hoskins is a reassuring case for banks and financial institutions generally, demonstrating that the court is prepared to take a robust approach to upholding the terms of prior settlement agreements between the same parties. The key question for the court in this case was whether it was possible for the parties to release claims they didn't know they had at the time of entering into the settlement agreement in question. And the upshot is, yes, it is possible to do so, provided this is what the parties intended. Having reached this conclusion, the next question for the court was whether this was achieved on the true construction of the words used in the settlement agreement. Here, the court acknowledged previous authority to the effect that, in the absence of clear language, the court should be very slow to infer that a party intended to surrender rights or claims of which he, she or they were unaware and could not have been aware of at the time. But the relevant clause in this case was widely drafted, covering, and I'll quote here, 
full and final settlement of the claim and counterclaim between the parties and of all claims past, present and future that the defendants may have against the bank, whether or not such claims were presently known. Sounds pretty comprehensive to me, Phoebe. No cloudy drafting there. (laughs) Yes, and the court agreed with you, Kerry. It found that the wording of the agreement was sufficiently clear and the court struck out a counterclaim which was barred by the terms of that settlement agreement. I think this really will be of interest to our podcasters because it highlights the importance of making sure that the releases in the settlement deed are drafted in sufficiently wide terms to prevent a counterparty from taking a second bite of the cherry. Absolutely, John. And as always, we have a blog post on this case if anyone listening would like a bit of further detail. I believe there's a link in the show notes. Uh, Yes, there is. Uh, Well, thank you for that, uh, Phoebe. And your second settlement case? The next decision I have for you is the Huntsworth Wine Company and London City Bond, which relates to Part 36 offers. As we know, these offers can have different cost consequences depending on whether the relevant offer is a claimant's Part 36 offer or a defendant's Part 36 offer. And this case essentially tells us that a claimant's Part 36 offer is not the same thing as a Part 36 offer made by a claimant. You have to look a little bit deeper than that. The court said in this case that the question of who is entitled to make a claimant's Part 36 offer cannot be determined simply by looking at who issued the proceedings or who made the first claimant's offer. Instead, the court must consider the substance of the Part 36 offer and it highlighted a fairly long list of factors to consider, which I'll leave you to read at your leisure via the link to our blog post, which is in the show notes. But on the facts of this case, it meant that the defendant could obtain a cost benefit of making a claimant's Part 36 offer in relation to its counterclaim, even though it was not formally the claimant in the litigation. When is a claimant not a claimant, eh? Well, thank you, Phoebe, if indeed you are, Phoebe. Uh, Well, look, to wrap up this meteorological metaphor-laden episode, I have two final cases to mention on the disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic to contractual rights. The first was about football, and the second was about rugby, and strangely enough, they reached opposite results. In the first case, the Football Association Premier League and PP Live Sports International, the High Court found that the pandemic did not trigger a material adverse change clause in a contract for Premier League broadcasting rights. In contrast, in European professional rugby and RDA television, the High Court found that the pandemic did amount to a force majeure event, enabling the broadcaster to terminate the contract for rugby broadcasting rights. And I wanted to highlight this pair of cases to you because they illustrate how similar factual circumstances can give rise to very different factual outcomes depending on the contractual protections that the parties have been able to negotiate. I don't have time to get into further detail here, but please check out a link in the show notes if you are keen to compare and contrast the football and rugby results. So there we are, uh, another session wrapped up. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the uh, recording, Um, but thank you very much indeed, podcasters, uh, for joining. Thank you, Phoebe, for um, your uh, input this afternoon. Thank you, my co-host, Kerry. Uh, And thank you, James, for pressing record. And hopefully we've been able to shine some sunlight uh, into your uh, afternoons, podcasters. All the best. Goodbye.